0: Land is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about the Wu-Tang Clan's The Jizza are insane. He may be the only rapper who lectures about quantum physics at Ivy League institutions including Harvard and MIT. That honor stems from his acknowledged role as the genius, the so-called Voltron head of hip-hop's most notorious group. A group that was targeted by the most hated man in America after that same man bought their one-of-a-kind album at auction for $2 million. A group that nearly crumbled under the weight of resentment, acrimony, and lawsuits. A group whose past continued to come back to haunt them, particularly when Staten Island's undisputed drug kingpins went on trial after a nearly 20-year reign of fear and violence. A group that made great music. Music made even greater and more profound by the presence of the Jizza, Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop for my Mellotron called Life Moves Pretty Fast MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Hello by Adele. And why would I play you that specific slice of from the other side cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on December 17th, 2015. And that was the day that the Federal Bureau of Investigation made an early morning arrest in New York City after a prolonged investigation. An arrest that sent a shock through the Wu-Tang world. On this episode, quantum physics, Ivy League institutions, the most hated man in America, from the other side cheese, and Wu-Tang Clan's The Jiza. I'm Jake Brennan and this is Disgrace Land. Few people living in New York City in the 1970s were as uniquely prepared for the dawn of rap music as Gary Grice, the boy the world would later know as the Jizza. But young Jizzah, AKA the genius, AKA young Gary here, didn't know that he was uniquely prepared for anything. All he knew were rhymes. The nursery rhymes in his mother goose book that he memorized as a kid the rhymes on records by the spoken word group, The Last Poets. He listened to those over and over, repeating every verse, every inflection, every cadence. He mashed both worlds together in his head, poems for kids and poems for adults, two halves of one brain. On one side, Humpty Dumpty, all broken up, with no one to put him back together again. On the other side, Jesus Christ himself, standing on the corner of Lenox and 125th, trying to catch the first cab out of Harlem. You know, when the revolution comes. When the revolution did come, when Curtis Blow dropped The Brakes in 1980, and Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five hit the R&B chart in 1982 with The Message, Gary, now a teenager, his head flowing with verses by local MCs like Spoonie G and Eddie Chiva, understood better than most what he was hearing, hip hop made sense. It was a language he was already speaking, a style he was already living. The hip-hop ciphers that broke out on street corners and block parties were all about inclusion. The ciphers were circles, and circles were made to be unbroken. They brought people together, people who had no other options, no voice. Like the punks across the pond in England, they had no future, until now. Hip hop made something out of nothing. Hip hop triumphed over adversity. It brought meaning to the absurdity of life and thus brought life to burnt out and deteriorating buildings in the South Bronx projects where Gary here spent the summers with his father. The South Bronx was ground zero for hip hop. DJs rolled up, plugged their huge speakers into a random light pole on the street, hijacked electricity and started spinning. And next, a dude just jumped on the mic, and then another dude challenged the first dude. It was all about standing your ground, proving your worth, mastering your flow. Gary took that flow with him to his mom's place, first on Staten Island, and later in Brooklyn. On paper, Staten Island was just another borough, but it was not the Bronx. And this being the late 70s and early 80s, news traveled as slow as the Staten Island Ferry. So Gary's cousin, Bobby Diggs, a.k.a. The RZA, got hip to the flow before the rest of Staten Island only because Gary brought it to him. Hip-hop blew Bobby's mind. Between the Kung Fu movies and now rap music, Bobby didn't sleep much. Who needed sleep? Along with their third cousin, Russell Jones, a.k.a. a Unique, a.k.a. Old Dirty Bastard, The cousins just wanted to walk the streets at all hours and look for a cypher. A circle of other MCs dropping freestyles off the top of their domes. Cyphers were where you learned. Cyphers were where you picked a fight. Not physically, but with your words. With your rhymes. With your flow. Gary learned quick. Soon, he was like the lone wolf in Shogun Assassin. Only if the lone wolf wasn't alone, but instead had a wolf path. And this wasn't the peaceful Edo period in Japan. This was New York in the 1980s. Muggers, murderers, thieves, and dope fiends were behind every corner. Fear City was not for the faint of heart. You had to be sharp. Your words, your delivery, your confidence. It had to be Wustoff, some cheap Ginzu shit. The rush you got when you brought fire to the cipher, when you were funky, cool, confident, like butter, or better yet, like mercury, both liquid and metal at the same time, that rush was incredible. Nothing felt better. Gary loved that feeling, so he did it more. He battled, he learned, he got better, and soon he was coming in for the kill. A choice verse was like a broadsword to the chest. In, out, a couplet here, A rhyme there, knees buckled and blood ran red. He was ruthless, he sliced necks. He cut heads, and the heads rolled. But as the decade rolled on and rap music gained commercial traction, the genre was increasingly vilified by those who didn't understand it the way Gary did. Tipper Gore, a Democrat senator's wife from Tennessee, led the charge at the Parents Music Resource Center. We have the PMRC to thank for those parental advisory stickers, as well as the erroneous claim that rap simply glorified violence and degraded women. In 1988, Hollis Queens' own Run DMC held a press conference to blast the media and come to rap's defense after a fan died at a hip hop show at the Nassau Coliseum. Writing about that show, the New York Times described rap music as, quote, a rhymed chant to an electronically produced beat and reported that the violence at this particular show was, and I also quote, the latest in a wave that seems to follow rap performances almost as closely as its fans decked out in gold chains. That wasn't what hip hop was about at all. Not to Gary, it wasn't. Hip hop was lyrical. It came from the streets, sure, but it also came from the heart, from the depths of your imagination. It was poetry and mathematics. Mother Goose, and Last Poets. It didn't have to be about your life. It could be about anything. It was multidimensional, cosmic. Rap was dust and stars. And in Gary's hands, rap was straight up genius. But genius isn't recognized by everyone. Mediocrity is much easier to spot. And thus, mediocrity dominates the conversation. turns out, Mediocrity wants to rule the world. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland. All access by visiting DisgracelandPod.com slash membership. Martin Shkreli had something that no one else had. Wu-Tang Clan's seventh studio album. Once Upon a Time in Shaolin was one of a kind. A singular copy had been made. Just literally one copy. Two compact discs housed in a silver jewel-encrusted box with a wax Wu-Tang seal and liner notes bound in leather. There was, quite literally, nothing else in the world like it. It wasn't just music, it was art. It was 2016. The year prior, Shakrelli put up $2 million at auction to own the world's rarest album. He paid more money for Once Upon a Time and Shaolin, than anyone had paid for an album in history. $2 million, that's nuts, (laughs) it's fucking crazy. For Shakrelli, though, it was a drop in the bucket. He had that kind of money, or at least he made it look like he had that kind of money. His parents worked hard for their money, immigrants who came to Brooklyn and found work pushing brooms, definition of working class. Not entirely unlike the guys in Wu-Tang, and also not unlike a lot of the guys in Wu-Tang, Shkreli dropped out of high school to hustle, but he didn't hustle dice games like Method Man, and he didn't hustle crack like U-God, Raekwon, and Deck. Shkreli had a different hustle, the stock market. Incredibly, he was buying shares of a little company called Amazon at just 15 years old. He interned for Wall Street hedge funds before he was 21. He grew tall by short-selling biotech stocks. He played huge risks and used the art of bullshit to cover his ass when those risks didn't pay off. His pharmaceutical company infamously bought the rights to market Daraprim, a drug used by AIDS patients. Shakrelli immediately raised the cost from $12.50 to $750, and that's over 5,000% per pill. The Daily Beast labeled Shakrelli the most hated man in America. And it wasn't just his wealth, or his greed, or his bullshit, or the fact that he made a life-saving drug next to impossible for sick people to afford. It was his smirk. The shit-eating granny flashed every time he was on the news sent a very clear message. He may be despised, and he may be a scam artist, but one thing could not be denied. He was untouchable. Every time he smirked, he confirmed this. Very entitled, very smug. And very safe up in his white collar tower. What's my name, his smirk seemed to say. Fuck you. That's my name. It was the same smirk he was flashing now in a video posted online, flanked by three men wearing masks over their faces. Shikreli gave the patented insufferable smirk as he addressed one particular member of the hip hop group whose one of a kind album he just purchased. Dennis, I'm going to call you by your government name. You're not a ghost face killer. I'm sorry. You're an old man that's lost his relevance, and you're trying to reclaim a spotlight from my spotlight. And that's not okay. Most people don't even try to beef with me. You know why? Because nobody's that dumb. And for whatever reason, you think that's okay to beef with me. That's a big mistake. Shakrelli, of course, was addressing Ghostface Killer, aka Dennis Coles, who called Shakrelli a shithead when TMZ asked him to comment on the buyer of Wu-Tang's unprecedented work of art. Ghost wasn't wrong, he told his truth. But hearing that truth pushed Shakrelli over the edge. His verbal missive online turned downright threatening. I'm gonna erase you from the record books of rap. I butter your bread, you understand me? Without me, you're nothing. Stop acting, stop pretending, stop lying. Be real and don't ever fucking mention my name again or there will be more of a price to pay than just this video. Shakrelli's threats may have phased a weaker person but not Ghostface. In fact, Ghost could not wait to respond to that fake-ass supervillain's video. And my God, man, did he respond. Google Ghosts' 11-minute video in which he destroys the Pharma bro with humor and heart and the help of his, his sister and his mother, but I digress. It's reasonable, however, to think that Ghost and the rest of Wu-Tang were aware of and perhaps concerned with the unspoken threat in play. You could laugh all you wanted at Shakrelli's weak thug act, but you could not deny this, that a man could be so entitled, so untouchable, so above the law, that he could take whatever he wanted. Didn't matter if Ghost could out-diss him or the Jizza could out-genius him, this guy had money, influence, and power, just like the PMRC back in the day. Today, it was a silver jewel-encrusted box, and tomorrow, it could be everything else. We'll be right back after this word word word. GZA was pissed. He knew he was getting fucked. And they were all getting fucked. Kid Capri, Granddaddy, IU, Cool G Rap, Master Ace. Each given a $25 per diem on this 10-city promotional tour while the sponsor their record label, Cold Chillin', was pulling down $60,000 a night. 60 grand. Now that was cold. It was also a wake-up call. The labels, the music industry at large, they didn't care about you. They only cared about how you could make money for them. And also they cared about keeping as much of that money from you as possible. Jiza, just 24 years old, wide-eyed, optimistic, hungry, was about to be taught a major lesson in how the world really worked. Cold Chillin', the label, was not gonna change GZA's life. He was gonna have to find another way. 1991, one year before the dawn of Wu-Tang. Jizza was still going by his original stage name, The Genius. His cold chillin' record solo debut, Words From The Genius, was barely making a dent. To be completely honest, it tanked. Very few people heard it, lost out there somewhere between the Tone Lokes and the N.W.A.s and the public enemies. Jizza gave it his all. He poured his heart and soul into every line on every track. Cold Chillin poured it all down the drain. In Jizza's eyes, they didn't give him a chance. They didn't give his promotional budget enough zeros. And now they're offering him this. Mere pennies on the dollar while they raked in the big bucks. Jizza may have been young, but he knew a screw job when he saw one. Not that life as an undervalued Cold Chillin artist was unique. Far from it. Like Hunter S. Thompson once said, the entertainment world is a, quote, long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs for no good reason, unquote. He was actually talking about the television industry, but it tracks for the music biz too. These recording deals were almost always made by young artists desperate to change their reality. And desperation will make you do just about anything. And in the case of guys like Jizza and his brothers in Wu-Tang, a record deal meant they were doing the impossible. They were making something of their lives. A record deal meant you could stop running, stop dealing, stop living hand in mouth. Thus, it was easy to sign on the dotted line, but even easier to feel like a dupe when you realized you'd been played. Thing is, getting played wasn't something that was exclusive to an artist's formative years. Cold chilling wouldn't be the only time JZA was going to do the math and scratch his head. Hey Dirty Baby, I got your money, was a line that the RZA likely never uttered, but Old Dirty Bastard's 1999 hit single was allegedly written about RZA and how he initially balked at letting ODB out of his Wu-Tang contract. As we covered in an earlier episode, that sentiment was echoed by many in the group who said they didn't have an easy time parting ways with Wu-Tang productions. Additionally, Ugod claimed in his autobiography that Rizza's deep knowledge of the music industry put the rest of the group at a distinct disadvantage. From what I can tell, he got rich, U God wrote, but I still don't know what I'm doing. This confusion and resentment never went away. It bubbled up time and again, and most notably around the creation of Once Upon a Time and Shaolin, the one-of-a-kind album sold to PharmaBro Martin Shkreli in 2015. An album which you got called, quote, some sucker shit, pure and simple, unquote. Raekwon agreed. In his own book, Ray called what went down during the making of that album as, quote, some of the dirtiest shit I've ever heard of. Once Upon a Time in Shaolin was conceived by Silver Rings, a Dutch-Moroccan rapper and producer originally discovered by ODB and Method Man and signed to Wu-Tang Records by RZA. The concept of a single copy of a single album sold to a single buyer was, of course, the end result of the increasingly worthless nature of all recorded music, most of which is now given away for next to nothing. But Silver Rings' idea was not exactly a new one. It harkens back to the golden age of classical music when music was not just art but work and work was time and time was money. Back when composers like Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart, to name a few, were put on retainer, were hired outright by wealthy patrons or royalty to make their music. According to the market, they were fairly compensated. But there was only one Mozart, not a clan of Mozarts, and that's where the problem with Once Upon a Time and Shaolin starts. The problem of fair compensation. Depending on which member of Wu-Tang you ask, they were either compensated very little or not at all for this album. And they were compensated very little or not at all for random verses they laid down here and there, verses they weren't even aware were being used for a new Wu-Tang record, a record that was produced in secret, a record that sold for $2 million. And where was that money going, they wanted to know. At every step, Wu-Tang were kept in the dark. Even when the album went up for auction, most of the guys in the group had never heard it. Wu-Tang weren't the only ones complaining. The artist who created the intricate silver box said he never got paid either. Hey, Silver Rings, baby, you got my money? And the question was asked in vain. Silver Rings wasn't answering. He wasn't in Shaolin anymore. So the disgruntled artist went after whoever he could track down. He sued some of the guys in Wu-Tang, who, as it turns out, were busy suing Wu-Tang Productions. After the biggest sale in the history of recorded music, Wu-Tang Clan was splintering. The lawsuits, the acrimony, the resentment. It was the perfect moment for a guy like Martin Shkreli to weasel his way in and take advantage of the crumbling foundation. But Shkreli wasn't the only one Wu-Tang had to worry about because just as the group was attempting to sort out what would become of their future, their past was working overtime trying to catch up to them. Rennell Wilson shot the first detective in the back of the head at point-blank range. He didn't know the cop had two sons waiting for him at home, not that it would have mattered. The other detective sitting inside the unmarked police car begged for his life while the first one bled out on his seat. He had three kids for Christ's sake, and he told Wilson he'd give him whatever he wanted. He wouldn't say shit about any of this, just don't kill him, not here, not now. Wilson wasn't listening. All his life, he'd known chaos and hardship. He saw plenty of foster homes and psych evals, but no happy endings, ever. The only thing that mattered in life was getting what you wanted, by any means necessary. And right now, Wilson wanted two things. First, the $1,200 that the undercover detectives were carrying for this botched buy and bust operation. And second, no witnesses. He pointed his pistol at the whimpering detective and pulled the trigger. Then, he dumped the two lifeless bodies in the middle of a Staten Island street and drove off into the night with the cash. (laughs) NYPD arrested Wilson two days later. They found some remedial rap lyrics he scribbled on a piece of paper bragging about being a cop killer two times over. Hip-hop and death, not-so-strange bedfellows. Two constants in the shithole of a city. So went the thinking by members of law enforcement anyway. Ronald Wilson didn't give a damn what the cops thought. He had no regrets and no remorse. And the prosecution told the jury that only a man with no remorse didn't take the stand. And so the jury sentenced Wilson to die. This was in 2007. Three years later, Wilson's sentence was overturned by a federal appellate panel. The prosecution had violated Wilson's right not to testify when they told the jury that stuff about remorse and testifying. Didn't matter if that sentiment was ultimately true or not. The law was the law. Back in Park Hill, Staten Island, where the law was anyone's guess, Wilson's temporary reversal of fortune was cause for celebration. Wilson's fellow sympathizers in the Bloods partied in a parking lot, including Anthony and Harvey Christian. AKA the Christian Brothers, AKA the undisputed kingpins of the Park Hill drug trade for close to two decades now. I should say that the Christian Brothers allegedly celebrated a cop-killer's stay of execution, as this detail was provided in the sworn testimony of one of their former associates, who, in 2014, turned snitch for the feds when the Christian Brothers were arrested and put on trial. Anthony and Harvey Christian were accused of running a feared and violent enterprise, charged with racketeering, firearms possession, multiple counts of drug trafficking and murder conspiracies, including in the case of Anthony Christian, the murder of a man named Jerome Boo Boo Estrella. Now, if the name Jerome Estrella sounds familiar to you, it should. You may remember him from our previous episode of Disgraceland about Mastakilla. Estrella was the Bloods member murdered in 1999 a murder that, at the time, the feds were trying to pin on Wu-Tang Clan. Reason being that Estrella had supposedly robbed the Rizos' little brother, and according to testimony from former gang members turned snitches, the murder was payback, alleged to have been ordered by Wu-Tang. Of course, the FBI's designation of Wu-Tang Clan as a major crime organization was old news. Their five-year investigation was closed shut, had been for a decade, Their file, which made connections between the hip hop group and numerous murders, not to mention the never ending transgressions of Old Dirty Bastard, was stashed deep in the bowels of a government building. Case closed. But nothing is ever truly closed. The past is never truly dead. It's only a matter of time before it wakes up again. Sometimes, though, it wakes up in Steubenville, other times on Staten Island. Once it woke up at the House of Blues in Los Angeles when a Crip tried to put a piece in Method Man's hand after the notorious B.I.G. was gunned down. And now, in a high-profile case involving two of New York City's most dangerous drug kingpins, it woke up again. Anthony Christian's lawyer heard about the FBI's file on Wu-Tang Clan. He demanded to see it. What if the Bureau's cold case had hot legs? Or what if all that existing due diligence could actually clear Anthony Christian's name? What I'm trying to ascertain, the lawyer said, is the FBI's stated belief in an official file that Wu-Tang ordered this homicide. He wasn't suggesting that Wu-Tang committed a crime. The FBI had gone ahead and done that already. Thursday, December 17th, 2015, 6 a.m. New York City was still shrouded in darkness when the knock came at the apartment door. And then another. Finally, the door opened. Federal agents wearing neatly pressed suits with guns at their hips and badges around their necks flooded inside. The man inside the apartment was barely awake, or maybe he'd never gone to sleep the night before. It was hard to tell with the ones who lived outside the law for so long. The lead agent told the man to put his hands behind his back and the man did as he was told and the agent got out his handcuffs. He locked them tight around the man's wrists and began to read him his rights. The agent led the man to the front door of the apartment building and out into the tree-lined streets of Murray Hill. The sun was struggling to come up. A crowd of reporters struggled to get a quote. The man wasn't talking. His gray hoodie was pulled over his head. He didn't say a word. He just let the feds walk him to where an unmarked car idled on the side of the street. And then he quietly ducked inside. After a prolonged investigation, after years of surveillance and COs and dead-end leads, of knowing in their guts that they were right, the FBI finally had vindication. They made an arrest and they had their guy. But this was not a member of Wu-Tang being led away by the FBI. The man in cuffs wasn't Ghostface Killer, nor was it the RZA or the Jizza. It was Martin Shkreli. Shkreli's perp walk was broadcast on every major network. It was headline news. The feds had an avalanche of evidence against him. As one agent put it, Shkreli was being charged with the securities fraud trifecta of lies, deceit, and greed. Martin Shakrelli's sudden fall from a smug untouchable to a disgraced con man was satisfying to watch for most, not least of all, Wu-Tang Clan. He'd defrauded investors and stole millions, and now everything was being taken away from him, including the $2 million album, which was sitting in a temperature-controlled room at the Department of Justice. Wu-Tang, meanwhile, were cleared of any wrongdoing in the eyes of the federal government. Drug kingpin Anthony Christian and his lawyer tried for a year to get the FBI's Wu-Tang case reopened but were unsuccessful. The Christian brothers were eventually found guilty on all charges. Harvey Christian received a 50-year sentence, while Anthony, who was also found guilty of the murder of Jerome Bubu Estrella, got life. Martin Shkreli got seven years for fraud. Ghostface Killer the method man, got a photo with James Comey former FBI director backstage at a taping of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Ghost posted it on his Instagram. The US government eventually resold once upon a time in Shaolin in order to satisfy the balance of Martin Shkreli's debt. It was purchased by a group of NFT collectors called PleaserDAO. And don't ask me to properly pronounce that or to explain decentralized organizations or non-fungible tokens, I'm not gonna do it, but I am gonna tell you that they paid twice what Shakrelli paid for it. Per the terms of the original sale, public release of the album is forbidden until the year 2103. And Jizza, AKA the genius, AKA the man Rizza once called the head of Wu-Tang's Voltron assembly, was standing at the podium in a lecture hall at MIT. At first, it felt funny to be there, like he was a man out of place, like maybe he should stay in his lane. But this was his lane. Thought, imagination, expression. No matter if it was in the classroom or on the street corner. All of it was cosmic. Everything was connected by dust and stars. Words themselves were electrically charged and electrical charges made up subatomic particles. Something like that, he was still learning. Since he was a little kid, he never stopped learning. But now, in addition to battling rappers in a cypher back in the neighborhood, he was trading thoughts with marine biologists and astrophysicists. And just think, him, Gary Grice, a kid from the South Bronx, from Brooklyn, from Staten Island, a kid obsessed with hip hop, that musical form once derided by the public and misrepresented by the media. He was here now as an ambassador of that music and that culture at the forefront of higher education. Waxing existential to college students about quantum physics, about time and space. But mostly about rap music. How he'd been there for the Big Bang back in the 70s and now how he was here over four decades later, still watching the so-called globalization of hip hop take over the entire world. From New York, all the way to Japan, Europe, Africa, and everywhere in between. Just like hip hop, Jizza could not and would not stop. From MIT, he went to NYU, and then from NYU to Harvard, and from Harvard to Oxford. He didn't want to rule the world, and there were enough mediocre people already trying to do that. The Martin Shkreli's and the FBI's and the Christian brothers. He was just trying to understand it. How so many were content to wallow in mediocrity, but yet had so much promise for genius. How the years were long and the challenges were deep. There was tragedy and there was triumph. And there were moments that burned bright. And there were times when, as Jizza explained about the current status of Wu-Tang, that match burns out. But there was always light somewhere. The cipher was never completely broken. Nothing was ever truly over. After all, the universe was expanding. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland all-access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com membership for details rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll